Hey there, no labels, no limits, no excuses podcast listeners. I'm with you once again this week, and I'm really excited to introduce to you Jess Pettit. Jess Pettit is someone I've known about not a long time, maybe five or six months, partly because I read her book, Good Enough Now. And for those of you who know me personally, you know that that is something that really resonates with what we talk about, about not waiting for things to be perfect, but to get going. But Jess has a different way of describing that and explaining it. So Jess is an author of that book. She's also a stand-up comedian, social responsibility, social justice, diversity, and change management speaker and consultant. And if you've spent any time listening to Jess on YouTube, you will get a sense of how she comes across both with humor and great sincerity in a way that it's easy to listen and learn from her. So Jess, with that as just a brief introduction, can you share more about yourself and things that you want people to take away about you in particular? Well, first off, thank you for having me and a great introduction. I don't know if I can toot my own horn as good as you did. I also really like cheese. That's important. Any particular kind? I tend to like the melty kind, Uh but, but occasionally I like the crumbly kind. Okay. So a cheese gal. I like that, but not from the Midwest. Not from the Midwest. No, that's true. Okay. And it's also like, I'm really conscious of the horrible things that have to occur in order for cheese to occur. That's also real. It is real. Mm -hmm. Social conscious. So there are many things, listeners, that when you read Jess's work or you listen to her, I have two pages of notes of things that I would spend a long time talking to Jess about. (laughs) I would. I mean, partly because they're of great interest to me in the work that I do and have done. And also personally, I don't even want to take this out of the realm of personal because I think your work, Jess, is very personal. And for those of you listening, there was, Jess and I were supposed to talk about six hours ago and it did not turn out that way. And so Jess, I'm going to ask you to start with explaining to people about the stories We tell ourselves bias and how that fits in because my experience today was in my own frustration about my story going south, for lack of a better word. It's humbling to come face to face with what you think to be true and it's not necessarily so. And it did get in the way of relationships in the moment and all that kind of thing. So with that as a tee-up, can you just take it where you think it fits? Sure. I think what's interesting about the story that's running in our heads, we really do think is somehow projected out on the largest speakers so that everyone around us knows what's actually happening. And it's not always true. You referenced this morning, which was completely fine, by the way, and things happen. And I got a lot done in the last five hours. So thanks for, you said five hours. And I was like, wow, look at me. I got a lot of stuff done. But that's a, an interesting piece, right? Is that you experienced it as like, ah, everything's falling apart. And I, was, I experienced like, oh, okay, great. I'll finish this PowerPoint deck. Very different places. And where my story comes from is my own lived experience as well. A friend of mine shared a story recently that he was about to speak and his mentor was going to come into his program. 
And so he got there and he was really nervous. It was a big client and he was nervous and anxious, et cetera. And his mentor hadn't shown up yet. And so he just started diving in and he spoke and about three fourths of the way through his mentor came into the back of the room and sat in the back row and was yawning. And my friend was just like, oh, I must have, I mean, I was just doing such a terrible, horrible job that my mentor like blew me off and then showed up and then was bored out of their mind. So afterwards, he goes up to his mentor and he's like, I'm sorry, like, what did I do so horrible? Like, I'm sorry, that was just awful. And the mentor says, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, number one, I just flew in from China. So I haven't slept in 38 hours. I got here as quickly as I could because my flight was late. And that was amazing. Like, I'm not even asleep. That was so good. And it's just a good reminder, right? Is that we have stories in our heads that often make us think that we have to perform at some perfect level and that everyone around us is judging us for not doing it. And all we have to do is shift that story to like, this is actually what's happening. So for folks who've read your book, they may know the paradigm of the head, heart, and action. And I've been, I realized that I have a series of questions that I typically ask folks with. And it just dawned on me. I'm thinking, I wonder what they are. Like, how would I categorize them? So when you talk about that story right there, that example, I want to know what are some of the ways or how might we be able to identify those stories so that we don't get so caught up in them that we pull ourselves out of showing up as our best that we can in the moment anyway. Well, to review, just in case it's been a while or if people aren't familiar with the book, I use three different variables in talking about how our lived experience has taught us how to show up. And what I mean by that first is that your lived experience is the best tool you have. And some of us are like, oh, no, 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 I've gone through a lot. And like, yeah, that's a good tool. But we usually don't extend that same grace to someone else. And we're like, why are they such a tool? And we don't actually realize that their lived experience has taught them that this is how to show up. We make judgments and assumptions to feel safe and prepared. And those judgments and assumptions are based on our lived experience. So heady in this way doesn't mean intellectual. It just means very detail-oriented. Hardy doesn't mean emotional. It means connected to like a much larger idea or a larger group than just yourself, a larger situation. And then action doesn't necessarily mean exercise, but it means kind of the doing of things. And it's a good variable set to remember that all three are in us all the time, but depending on how our life has helped us feel safe or feel prepared, we tend to lean in particular directions, either as our consciousness is doing something or the source of our excuses and our excuse patterns. So my friend is a very high action-oriented kind of guy. So he focused on when his friend came and what his friend was actually doing in the room. So his friend was late, his friend was yawning, therefore must be bored. That's what wrote his story. But the piece of the mentor being disappointed in him, him not doing a good job, that would probably be his heart part, that it was much bigger than just the actual scenario if that's helpful. It's a paradigm that's helpful to me. It is helpful. I'm just trying to, for me, kind of play it out because there's a number of situations that you can look at that in. So when we think about that, we there are pieces of us, right? Pieces of each of these in us. Do we, and we probably lean towards one 
more frequently or by default? Is it, is, would you say that based on our experiences or comfort? Um, I would say that we become comfortable in our habits, but we usually lean on two. Okay. And then the third one is kind of a dangling participle that fuels all of our excuses, but it can also be like a gas pedal that when push comes to shove, that really can fuel us or de-accelerate us. So like I'm a head action person. So I often, if I feel inadequate or like a fraud or I can't do this because I'm not enough, something like that, my heart part is tripping. But when I've done things that are remarkable or have really been in what some people call the flow, it's because all three variables are used because I actually feel like what I'm doing is making a difference or it's really mattering. So that's where my heart can also show up. So when you work with folks, does that work help people see where they are or become more aware? I mean, you said that our best tool is ourself and our lived experience. How do we get closer to those things so that we can actually see them in play and become more aware? Yeah, people are really resistant to doing self-work and self-reflection work. So when I work with an audience or a board or something like that, what we usually have to do is start with them categorizing others. Usually they're really annoying, frustrating people in their life. So if they can categorize others and understand how the model works with them, the bonus is is that they might actually give them 30 seconds of kind of grace to show up in a different way. But then those actions and that application has to become a habit before typically people will find themselves in the model, give themselves a space of grace to then be able to have a conversation with themselves. Okay, I'm getting there. Because the whole thing of actually being able to externalize it first or see it play outside of us, I think is frequently easier. It's like, well, could you just fix that person and it would be all right. Could you please fix them? Right. Um, Like there's nothing wrong with me, I think, but let me tell you what's wrong with this guy. And I can go into great detail. Right. And I always call him Todd, right? So like we can analyze Todd like as if it's an Olympic sport, but take those analytical skills and apply them to how we show up as a Todd or how we are somebody else's Todd. We kind of shut down. And is that the safety issue you were talking about and it just being so uncomfortable? I think so. I think it has to do with safety. And I also think it's not near as fun, you know, to like... Pick ourselves apart. Yeah. I mean, when compared to being right and turning a Todd, you know, like being able to be like, I'm right. That feels so much better than like, wow, I'm Todd. Mm. I was listening to you talk in a presentation. And you said that though, there are some common things that you hear in all the work you do about why we are not enough or why we don't believe we are enough. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. The enough piece I think is, I mean, it's kind of a different interview, but I think part of it is capitalism and that we constantly feel like we have to be growing and evolving and accumulating in order to reach enough, which is hysterical to me when you realize that you've actually started at enough, then you don't have to actually add on. It's also a really convenient excuse to not do a lot of things that you might actually really be interested in because you don't have enough education or you don't have enough time or you don't have enough experience. 
it's a very common way of kind of uh, dispelling one of responsibility. So I like to say that if there's a possibility, then that can automatically trigger people's defense mechanisms. And then you say, okay, that's great. What if there's a possibility that there's a possibility? Then it's a lot harder for those defense mechanisms to stick around. And then the next thing you know, you're actually like leaning into it and kind of building up a sense of momentum. But if you just stick with, well, I'm not prepared or I'm, I'm not as good as somebody else because we judge ourselves against someone else, then the concept of enough seems to be outside of us and ahead of us and just out of reach when by definition, enough is actually already in existence and are where we're at. So I think that's extremely interesting to me because when I think about, and, and I did appreciate your reference to capitalism or corporate or whatever, but it's that whole measurement piece. And it's interesting to me when I speak with other leaders or actually not even leaders, just I talk to young people and there's that comparison with others. And that is so in us in a young age to compare, I'm not enough, or even looking at social media, right? I'm not as much as, or the same as whatever. So I'm curious in a corporate And I don't know if you've studied this or actually dived into this, but I'm wondering to what degree the use of metrics and that enough standardization and stuff, which help help us know are we hitting bottom line and those kinds of things can lead to burnout and folks, I mean, truly not feeling they're not enough because they're not producing enough or not showing up enough in the right way for that environment. Yeah, I think like it, Let's start with just parenthood. So I do not have any children, full disclosure, but that makes me a very interesting observer of my friends that are parents. And when my friends have been either pregnant with their first child or going through an adoption process and the the kid hasn't arrived yet, my friends are like readers. So they're reading and reading and reading. So you can imagine a chart of, let's take like verbal skills. So a chart exists on how many days, weeks, months old a child or a baby is before they typically, on average, median, mean, start making audible noises. Well, using all these statistic words, what that means is is there are going to be people who are earlier than this and there are going to be people who are later than this, but a good like average kind of in the middle is this number. But most parents will immediately go to the right side of the chart to figure out what is above average because they want their kid to be above average. So then when their kid does not measure up above average, a friend of mine actually literally asked me, do you think my kid is autistic? And I was like, first off, I don't, I was a ceramics major. Why are you asking me this question? But because some chart said that the kid should be making sentences by their age now, I had to remind them, and they're a stats professor, but I had to remind them that like, this is the average. Like, I don't think that there's necessarily something wrong with your kid if they're just not in the furthest right column. So it's, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because we've been judged and compared to averages and means in utero. So surprise, when we come out, we now do the same thing 
I had an interesting experience. This has been many, many years ago. With, and this will seem like a non sequitur, but it, it is not. With a doctor who was explaining, he's an endocrinologist. And he, and he says to me, he says, yep, all of your stuff, you're within average. And I said, well, okay, I guess that's good. And he said, it doesn't solve your problem though, does it? Because we couldn't figure out what the deal was. And I said, well, if I'm within average, he goes, but you're not comfortable. I said, no. And he said, so if I told you that for your height, everybody had an average size of nine and a half, what would you tell me? I said, shoe. And I said, well, I wear a 10. And he says, yeah, and that nine and a half is going to be miserable for you. He said, it's just averages. You've got to pull yourself out of that and just go, for me, this is my reality. And stay true to it. And it was... Because it's enough. That's the key piece, right? Is that they make shoes in a size 10. Like that's fine, right? I wear an 11 and a half. So like it's enough. That is enough information for you to be able to exist. Great. Right. But it really rung for me that I'm going, oh, okay. So that was freeing. I think for me, it was very freeing. And so I feel that way also about what you put forth in your book too, that what you have at this moment is enough and it's enough not to be make an excuse not to do something, if that makes any sense. Have you, you talk about compassion fatigue? Yep. And I know that I work a lot with folks and many of the listeners are in the nonprofit sector of the human services, the helping services. And that is something very common to folks in that just from the depth of the work in terms of staying connected to it. Can you talk a little bit about that compassion fatigue in general and then how you work with it? Yeah, so the important thing to know about compassionate exhaustion is that it's kind of, not to get Buddhist, but to hold the, uh, there's a Buddhist principle that two emotions can be held at the same time, even if they're contradictory. So if you have compassionate exhaustion on one side, you have radical amazement on the other one. And the premise is, and there's going to be a link, I believe, to my TED Talk where I kind of explain this, but I overlay it on a Roger's innovation curve, which is a business thing about marketing, but it's basically the same principles. And so what compassionate exhaustion ultimately is, is that you care so much you're going to burn out. And ultimately, that's what the status quo or these exquisitely designed systems are hoping for. So now in a political sphere, regardless of what your politics are, on either side or third, fourth, fifth facets, we're creating a culture of kind of outrage burnout because people care so much, they're not going to do anything. When the last presidential election happened and there were all of those marches, the first thing I said was, be really careful that you don't overextend yourself on these marches, because that is also part of compassionate exhaustion. You're going to burn through your vacation time. You're going to burn through your activism gas. And then eventually, if it's still needed, you're not going to have enough gas or time to actually keep doing what you're doing. And you're going to give up, which is the plan. So compassionate exhaustion happens typically when our energy and our resources are focusing on the people who are really not interested. If we put it in a marketing context, there are people in 2018 who exist who do not have a cell phone, let alone a smartphone. If Apple was going to market the Apple 20 or whatever version they're on now 
to the people who have never purchased a cell phone, that's a really hard sell. The people who are not interested, I was having an interview this morning where someone was talking to me about the importance of NFL. I don't like professional sports of any kind. I am the wrong person to be selling this to. I'm not interested. And if people tell you that they're not interested, but your response to that is to try harder, that is where compassionate exhaustion lives. If you flip it around, where radical amazement exists, is the early adopters, or the people who are very, very interested, lo and behold, they're more interesting and less exhausting to work with. So by working with the people who are interested in actually being there, you're going to stay energized, if not even share energy with other people and keep momentum going. Then you can stay in the work in a state of radical amazement. So circling back, you actually had your own experience of compassionate exhaustion, right? On a weekly basis. Which one are you referring to? Well, I'm actually thinking (laughs) about, well... I didn't know it was that frequent, but I was actually thinking about when you took a step back from the work you've been doing for over a decade, you know, a dozen years or more, and rethought how you looked at your work around diversity and all of that and re-energized yourself. And when I think about what you shared with folks, you know, in your writing and on, on your YouTube, that that really was a very brave thing to do. And it may, not, it may have felt like it was just what you had to do in the moment, but really to be that vulnerable with all that knowledge and experience behind you to be able to say, this isn't working for me, not in this way at this moment. I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about how you moved through that to emerge on this side of it where you're engaged again and just so fully into the work in a powerful way. Absolutely. And thank you for calling it brave. I don't know that I agree or disagree. I don't know that I had a choice. I'd been doing what I now refer to as bad diversity trainings for about 10 years and expecting me to change, my audiences to change, the world to change. And I was noticing zero change and was just going to quit. Like, okay, well, this isn't working out. I should just quit. And in a much more practical matter than some kind of ideal, beautiful moment, I realized I don't really have any other skills. The only other thing I really can do is fold a fitted sheet, and I'm not really certain how to monetize that. So if I'm going to pay my bills and I have to stay somehow talking about controversial topics and why I think responsibility makes the world a better place, then I needed to figure out a way to do it that actually felt better and possibly resulted in actual change in me. And so I started paying attention to the excuses I was making and the excuses I was hearing other people make. In paying attention to those excuses, that's where the head heart action uh, variables came from because I found people's excuses kind of fit into these three categories. Prior, I had done a lot of research on my social justice icons, Martin Luther King, Mother Teresa, and Gandhi. And I realized that as I kind of discovered these patterns, I wish there was some like sexy moment, but I was on a dog walk and I had three dogs at the time. And I realized that how I was giving, for lack of better words, like dog commands 
to each of the dogs was very, very different based on their personalities and how they responded to dog commands. And I realized that I was like, well, that's really interesting because I had just been doing a lot of the reading and writing around the research around head, heart and action. And then I'm on this dog walk and I'm like, well, I'm just seeing it everywhere because that's the research that I'm working on. Clearly it can't actually be like this profound of a thing. So I'm walking my dogs and kind of talking my way out of this moment. And then I have used Martin Luther King, Gandhi and Mother Teresa in all of my work and originally did the research on them because I was trying to figure out what their stumbling blocks were and why did they feel compelled to keep doing social justice work as I found out that they often did have stumbling blocks. And on this dog walk, it dawned on me that not only are these three variables present in those three icons, but they became the archetypes. And by becoming the archetypes, I then could place myself into a system. So that felt really good. I, based on the archetypes as a head action person, I'm Gandhi. And that also forced me to realize that Gandhi is a really annoying, frustrating person to work with. Oh my God, that means I'm really annoying and frustrating to work with. So I came back from this dog walk and immediately called my assistant and some of the other people I'd collaborated with. And I just asked very key questions that I wish I could have asked Gandhi's coworkers. And their answers were exactly what I would have expected Gandhi's coworkers to be. And I was like, oh my gosh, okay, so that's one telling. Two, I'm glad I'm sober because I can't drink right now. So good to know. And then I tried, okay, who do I know that really fits into kind of a Mother Teresa archetype? And I called them ran a series of questions through them. They also like just completely passed with fine colors. Like they were that archetype. And I did it with Martin Luther King. And then, then I realized I was on to something and I got excited about it. And what's interesting about burnout or compassionate exhaustion or whatever we want to call it is that if we can self-generate our own energy back into the work, then it's completely unstoppable. And then that's what I did. So then I kept up the research, I kept paying attention to my audience members, and I started kind of conceptualizing this concept of good enough and now. And even the book is broken into three sections, good enough and now. And good is very heady. It's got a model in it and you can apply the model in a very specific way. Enough is very hardy in the sense that it's exercises that take you backwards and forwards through your own life to kind of how you ended up this way. And then the now section is really the actions that one can take to claim responsibility, but also to make it a habit to do that self-work so that you can make better connections with other people. So it kind of came out in that manner around the mantra of do the best you can with what you've got some of the time. And I want to just reiterate for folks Because as you're talking, I'm flipping through the various sections of the book that I have right in front of me. It is a really digestible book and useful in that sense because it is broken into that way, Jess. And that's why it's so interesting depending on where you resonate or where I resonate. There's parts I'm thinking I would immediately go there. It speaks to me, right? I can hear that. And then other parts kind of come up. I'm able to read them and hear them differently as a result of getting into where my comfort zone is first. So when you asked your coworkers about 
the Gandhi working with the Gandhi type, that was to get a reaction from their perspective of that? It was a kind of litmus test, but I've done so much archival research on my social justice icons that I kind of I kind of hear their voice, even though obviously that's not true, but what it must have been like to work with someone who was as frustrating as Gandhi. And so to ask my coworkers this kind of hypothetical, knowing that I'm actually asking, what is it like to work with me? And they either did or didn't know that that's who I was really asking about, but their answers were kind of exactly like I would have imagined Gandhi's coworkers, co-organizers. And I was like, oh, wow, that's an interesting, like unexpected self-criticism lens. And then I just kept it up. So, so what do you do with that? Well, I mean, what do you do when you hold up a mirror? Well, that's what I mean. Yeah. So I mean, I obsess or you just be aware. Both. I mean, you put the mirror down when you're not in the mood. And when you are in the mood, I focus on every errant hair and zit that I have. And as a 45-year-old woman, why do I still get zits? And why do facial hairs, why are facial hairs completely invisible until they're nine inches long? Like, why is this happening? Why Um, is that happening? I've wanted to know that for you. I don't know. It's (laughs) It's most not right. There's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing. Oh my God, that's so long. How does that you're thinking, yeah. how long has that been there? Yeah. So, and I mean, where like, haha, this might be funny. Some people are like, mm-hmm, now they're looking in a mirror. But I think that's what we do with self-reflection, right? right. Like, mm, I'm going to skip this part. I'm not into it. Or you think you're into it. And then all you're doing is being hypercritical. And then sometimes you're in it. You're like, okay, let's see what's here. And I think it takes all three to really be self-reflective and then you're not done, then you just have to pick it up again. Okay. I'm going to ask you to touch on a couple of last things as we wrap. I really liked one of the things you said, and I'm not sure where you said it because I don't track that well. I pay attention, I read, and then I get moved and I'm going, okay. But if I quoted you correctly or paraphrasing you correctly, it's that when we rely on each other, we can really change the world. Is that close to what you said? Possibly. I, like you, wrote the book 100 years ago and done, I don't remember, but I agree with that statement. <laughs> okay, good. Do you have any clue what you meant about that? Because that seems so powerful to me about that interconnectedness piece, and, but I'm not sure in what context you meant relying well, on one another. My guess is, and I, I'm familiar with the concept because I talk about it all the time. I just don't know what page it's on. But we can't do everything all the time, 100% of the time, right? Like there's a Facebook meme that says, I can do anything. I just can't do everything. And as you know, Instagrammy as that may sound, it's a really important reminder And so if I can do anything, but I can't do everything, if I team up with someone else in the same predicament, we're actually going to be able to accomplish more. And the key thing I think is about actually relying on other people, not just asking for help or delegating or kind of dividing up a task and trusting that other people will do it. But relying on other people is creating a sense of community. It's creating a sense of belonging. And that community and sense of belonging actually has changed the world. So that's a very powerful distinction, especially when you said it's not delegating or dividing a task up, but relying on somebody Mm -hmm. or somebody's to do that. I just think 
that for me feels so strong. It's when you know that somebody's got your back or some buddies are always there in community around you. Yeah. Even on your worst days. Absolutely. It involves a sense of trust and a sense of faith. And I'm not talking about like, go pick up my dry cleaning. What I have to remain hopeful for is you or one of your listeners or somebody who accidentally downloads this episode on accident and thinks it's something else, but is actually listening to this. But in that moment, something will connect me and that person that I may never meet, but they feel like they belong to this community. And that makes me feel like I belong to this community. And that is already enough of a change. And that's the only reason I started this podcast, because I believe that we will never know who hears, right? I mean, you'll know some, but I just have that thing. It's like when you have groups, I know you do groups, but I've had people email me and say, I'm sorry, um, only eight of the 30 people are coming. And years ago, I just went, it doesn't matter. The right people are going to be in the room. It's not numbers. It's the right people. And it's the same thing with that. It's that someone, I know someone needs to hear what you have to say. I know it. Mm -hmm. And I don't know who that is. And I don't know if they'll ever reach back and say, thanks for having Jess on because it made, it made a huge difference to me in the moment. But I know that that will happen. Yeah. Um, It goes back to what you were talking about with stories earlier, you know, so I'm facilitating a conversation in my local community tomorrow from 10 to three. The space supposedly holds 30 people. Okay, great. So I did an event, right? Right. I think 17 people have RSVP'd, three people have dropped out. And I'm still getting emails today from people saying, oh, oh, I really want to go. Is there any space? I know it's last minute. I'm so sorry. It's tomorrow. Please, please, please let me go. And then the next email is, I know I RSVP'd. I'm so sorry, but my dog is sick and the vet only has an appointment tomorrow. And it's just fascinating to me because we're not even at 30. Like, come, go take care of your dog. Do what you need to do. Like, whoever's going to show up is who's going to show up, and that's going to be great. So with that piece of grace, which I felt in my craziness this morning, in my own head craziness, I think the only other person who knew I was feeling crazy was my husband. So I appreciate that that's how you show up because I think it allows for the rest of us to have that space as well you know, go take care of your dog, show up, don't, whatever. I think that helps with the being enough piece. And so that's just a personal thank you to you. Absolutely. We, we will put the links to your TED Talk and your book and other pieces on the show notes for this and also in the promos, because I want people to take time and go out and find you and learn more from you. I guess I would ask you to leave us with one last thing because I'm greedy. And uh, I am. I would love for you to talk a little bit about how conversations can help us have better connections that matter. Absolutely. And thank so, you. One more link too, just to be extra fulfilling, is Thanks. if you you or your readers, if you go to goodenoughnow.com slash freebies, F-R-E-E-B-I-E-S, there's a whole bunch of downloads and videos, all of the activities and handouts from the book are there for free, but there's a lot of really good stuff. So goodenoughnow.com slash freebies. The last point about conversations is the the subtitle of the book is do the best you can with what you got some of the time. 
And even for the most nonverbal introvert, you have the ability of even, even if it's a nonverbal conversation, to actually allow someone to feel seen and heard. Even if it's a barista, even if it's someone walking on the sidewalk, it's someone you're never going to see again, or it is a challenging, heated, personal conversation. Each conversation that you have is an opportunity to make a better connection. And if you lean into or enter into a conversation with, this is the one I'm going to try and make a better connection, it doesn't mean that you're entitled, like the, the other person may not be in the space to play with you, but you can still say, I'm going to make a better connection. And when you make that kind of proclamation, then you can have an intentional conversation. And by being intentional, you're going to start first by listening to other people, listening to them as if they're wise. You don't have all the answers. Perhaps they can teach you something. Then you're going to form your message. You're going to actually like then let it escape your face, right? Or in your eyes or in your heart, you're going to actually communicate. And then you're going to take responsibility for however that message landed, be it positive or negative, congruent or incongruent with your intention. But you're going to take responsibility for it because it has an impact on your connection. And then you're not done. You'll start over. Next thought, next idea, next person, next connection. But if you can do the, what it takes to have a focused, better connection opportunity, even 1% of the time, it is better than nothing, never. So I think we'll end on that because just because of what you said, it is better than nothing, never. And I just think being that more connected to people intentionally, I know it matters in my life when people do it with or for me. and I. I appreciate that you remind us about how simple that can be. Yeah, absolutely. So Jess, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to sharing you with all the listeners. And I know you have many more weeks of podcasting ahead of you for 2018. So I will look forward to listening in and learning more. Yeah, absolutely. And it is my goal to support podcasters this year. So if you or any of your listeners have any other suggestions of other podcasts, I have um, just under half the year to go and I'm still looking to be a guest at least once a week. So thank you. You're welcome. And I will share that information in my network because there may be some folks who are saying, I want her, I want her. Yay! I'll put it out there. All right. Thank you, Jess. Thank you so much, Sarah. Have a great day. Thanks. Well, that's it for this week's edition of the No Labels, No Limits podcast. We hope you like what you heard. And if you did, we ask that you go over to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. If you know someone who would enjoy this podcast, please be sure to share. And until next time, have a great week living a no labels, no limits, and no excuses life.